Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast, and thanks for joining us. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial advisor health and well-being, and today's guest has been studying this very topic for the last several years. Uh, His name is Michael Kitsis. He's a blogger, chief financial planning nerd at Kitsis.com, head of strategy at Buckingham Wealth Partners, and also the co-founder of the XY Planning Network, Advice Pay, New Planner Recruiting, FP Pathfinder, and FA Bean Counters. Uh, he has quite the resume. He's also the host of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Um, just a well-known, great podcast out there. Michael, thank you so much. Welcome, and uh, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, my pleasure, Diana. Appreciate the opportunity to join you and get get to talk a little about advisor health and well-being. Yeah. And so I'm so excited about this podcast episode, uh, you know, number one, because it's you, Michael, you're a uh, you know, sought after speaker, pioneer in the industry, leader in this industry. And I'm I'm really grateful to be tapping into your brain trust today. And and second, we're going to be discussing Kitsis Research's 2023 Advisor Wellbeing Study. And this topic is, is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I mean, I've been speaking to advisors and industry execs about well-being and and personal development since I launched this podcast in 2019 just before covid and I've but I've really been coming at this topic from a more anecdotal perspective yeah. and and you're sort of putting real measurable data behind it and so that's really exciting for me um a little background about the study and the methodology uh kids have surveyed over 1500 members of financial advisory teams on their current level of life quality or well-being based on a zero to 10 scale. And uh, the well-being rating averaged 6.84 across all respondents, which was roughly in line with the U.S. population at large. But Michael, I want to start out by, you know, just tell me a little bit about the history of this study. I know this is not the first one, um, but how did you kind of come up with the idea of measuring advisor well-being, you know, and, and why is it important to have a discussion about that in the in the industry? So th- this this study kind of came about to for me from t- two different angles that kind of converged at the same time uh, uh, several years ago. The 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 first part of it was I I had noticed this phenomenon and trend emerging where I was talking to a lot of what I what I would call mid mid-sized advisory firms, which is, you know, in our industry context, think probably a couple hundred million dollars under management, you know, two, three, five hundred million dollars under management. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the advisors were really not terribly happy with their businesses. Like they were making pretty good money. The math gets pretty good at that point, but they had they had business challenges and people challenges and growth challenges and scaling challenges and operations challenges and HR challenges, like all this stuff. And they're like, I've made the business bigger 
but now I actually kind of feel like I'm more more a slave to my business than I was before. Mm. So I was seeing this phenomenon of sort of like anecdotally, uh, as you noted earlier, but like a lot of firms that were growing bigger and the advisors seemed less happy. Mm. And and then at the same time, I noticed this sort of parallel that when I, re when I really looked out, I said, you know, of, of the advisors I know, who are the happiest advisors that I know? Like just, they just seem to be happy with their businesses and life and everything that's going on. And I found overwhelmingly, they were solo practitioners. When I thought of happy advisors I knew, it was pretty much all solo practitioners who just, they had a clear client base they worked with. They did really good work for those clients. They got compensated well for their services. They worked like, 30 hours a week because they didn't have a ton of clients. They just had a small subset of really good clients. And and they were really happy in their practices and mm -hmm. their lives. And they weren't huge by industry standards of like big, 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 grow, grow, grow. But they were pretty good income. I can do the math on a solo practice with tens of millions of dollars. And they seemed really happy. And mm -hmm. so watching this phenomenon of when I, at least anecdotally, like when I looked for the happiest advisors, they tended to be really small. And then when I looked at where I was seeing some of the unhappiest advisors, they tended to be in bigger firms. I was like, well, I wonder if there's something going on here. Cause the industry certainly has a mantra of grow, 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 right? I, if you're not growing, you're dying. We, we tell all these stories about growth. And then I'm looking at the advisor community. I'm like, but I don't actually see more happiness in the advisors who are growing, I wonder if there's something going on. Mm. And, and that's what spawned us to say, well, maybe we should do a research study on this. We we started doing research on our platform kind of through kitsis.com back in 20, 20, late 2017 into 2018. We did some studies on how financial advisors do their planning process. We'd done some studies on how advisors market and I kind of came this feeling of like, I'd like to really look at what's going on with their well-being. We have all these practice management benchmarks for the financial health of an advisory firm. How about like the health health, the well-being health of the advisor themselves? And and that's what emerged into this well-being study that we, we first launched in early 2020, not knowing what else was going to be going on in 2020 at that point. Uh, we did it again in the second part of 2021, and now we just put it onto a regular uh, biannual schedule. So we did it in 2023, and we'll queue up another one in 2025 and every other year going forward from here. I love it. I I I just love it. And I mean, I I know that like maybe 20 years ago or something, we were writing about you know at Registered Rep Magazine, there were studies coming out that um, you know showed that financial advisors were actually more prone to like addiction, obesity, uh, burnout, you know, stress. Um, and so I'm, I'm really curious to see how um, that has changed where we're at now. Um, and, you know, obviously like the industry has just come so far in terms of, you know, more, more independence, more, you know, less of a focus on pushing products and, and, and selling on commissions and things like that. But First, I mean, are any definitions that we should go over first? Like, I, I was curious how you're actually defining yeah. well-being and happiness, for instance. Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. So, 
we decided we did not want to reinvent the wheel on this. So one of the best known studies on well-being is actually run by Gallup, the the mm -hmm. like, global polling organization. Uh, they do an international well-being study. It's incredibly well uh, uh, reputed and and very rigorously done. Of I forget what it is like a uh, hundred and thirty different countries around the world. They survey millions of people. And it's all built around a a a particular measure of well-being that was first created by a a, a social researcher many years ago uh, named Cantrell, and it's built around a very a very specific question. And the question is: so imagine a ladder with steps that are numbered. The bottom of the ladder is a zero, and the very top of the ladder is a ten. Mm. So the top of the ladder represents the best possible life for you. And the bottom of the ladder represents the worst possible life for you. Mm. On what step of the ladder would you say you personally feel you stand at this time? Mm -hmm. So it's asking people to rate themselves on their own version of whatever their best and worst possible life is. Okay. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me as a measure, right? It's, it's, in many ways, like it's it's not an objective measure of where someone's you know financial health and well-being and success is. It's on their perception of where they are relative to where they think they could be as their best possible life or where they're not as their as their worst possible life. So you get this series of scores. As you noted earlier, you know, the general population in the US averages about a 6.9 on this scale. Uh, when we measured advisors, it was almost exactly the same thing, 6.84, which was not statistically significantly different. So financial advisors, at least on average, show up the same way to this question as as the average American in general. So there's not a, you know, yes, advisors financially earn incomes that are well above the average American, but sort of directly the point on well-being more money does not necessarily make us happier. Advisors are not particularly happier than the average American when we measure them on this well-being scale. The particular focus that we had for the study, though, and, and what I wanted to start looking at as I'd, as I'd begun this thread of research was say, okay, well, like on average, advisors may average out to the, the, the general American overall. But if we start then drilling down to who the advisor is, what they do, where they work, how they're paid, right? If we start getting like some of the industry, the, the ways that we draw different lines within the industry, yeah. what what I was really curious to see as we had uh, sort of started out in this study is trying to answer the question of, are there particular segments that seem to be doing better or worse? Like, do we find happy advisors in one channel and less happy advisors in another channel? Or are there certain demographics that lead to happiness or psychographics that lead to happiness. That's that's much of what we were looking for initially. And we tried to frame it up into this thing that I call the 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 factors that matter, like the particular drivers that seem to most be associated with advisors who have greater well-being than than the average. Yeah, that's great. Um what are some of those top drivers, those factors that are driving happiness? So ultimately, we found the biggest drivers around 
advisor well-being was was what I'm I'm now starting to call like the the big four. There were, you know, we measured. I mean, ultimately, it was a hundred plus different variables that we were testing through this process. But we found they kind of grouped into four four main domains. The first was autonomy. Mm. Do you have autonomy? And autonomy in the context of advisors seems to show up in two, two particular ways. Do you have autonomy in how your clients are served? Um, mm-hmm. If I can't serve my clients the way that I believe they should be served, I get really frustrated as an advisor. Right, so it makes intuitive sense, but we live in a highly regulated, compliance-driven industry. So when those lines start to clash between I can't serve clients the way I want to serve them and believe they should be served because I'm having limitations in my firm, the unhappiness starts to rise. Mm. And and the second domain that we found around autonomy is autonomy of time. So do I have control over my time and where I'm, how I'm spending my time? If I'm not in control of my own schedule, if I'm kind of a slave to the business or the boss or the clock or their agenda or anything to that effect, advisor well-being starts to go down when the when those various autonomy factors start to go down. Mm-hmm. So we found autonomy was kind of the first biggest driver, which to me at a meta level sort of made sense like oh well that probably helps to explain why there's like a 20 plus year industry trend in the general direction of independent channels yes because they allow for more autonomy to let us serve the clients we want to serve the way we want to serve them and control our own time and schedules the way that we want to live our lives Mm. did that sort of correlate with advisors that were sort of independent contractors versus those that were employees of a firm or it, know, or the w2 model it it did but not not dominatingly as though all like all w2 advisors are unhappy and all all independent and they don't have autonomy yeah are, right. are, are unhappy a because this autonomy is one one of multiple factors but b even within employee models some employee model firms still allow their advisors a lot more flexibility than others, either around their, you know, their control and flexibility of their schedule or their or their control and flexibility about how they serve their clients. So even within the W-2 realm, not all not all W-2 roles are the same. But the general arc is towards control over my time and control to be able to serve my clients the way that I believe they should be served. And and mm-hmm. indirectly, what 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 we we seem to find is that, I, frankly, I, as advisors, we're pretty good at self sorting into these industry channels. At least over time, we all start wherever we're going to start, and then find out whether that was a good fit for us or not. But by the time we get to advisors who are seven to ten years in, we see. A lot of rises in happiness. We'll actually talk about that in the moment as as kind of second driver. But there does seem to be this process that if we're one of those types that really favors the autonomy independent side, we migrate towards those channels. If we don't actually care about that, or we're at a firm like, look, they they give me the autonomy and the things I care about, and then they handle all the rest of the stuff that I don't really want to deal with anyways. Mm-hmm. A lot of advisors are quite happy to stay in employee channels, W2 channels, large firm channels, 
if they still get autonomy in the few parts that are important to them, and then they just don't have to deal with the rest that they don't necessarily want to have to deal with. Because yeah. indirectly, one of the things that we see where unhappiness starts to crop up in the independent channel is if you're really building your own firm as an independent, you have to figure all these things out yourself as an independent, mm -hmm. which is not everyone's happy place. Uh, you know, what we actually found from the very first study when we had when we had put it out was kind of reaffirming the the anecdotal uh, data that I was finding in the first place. We had found from the very first well-being study that the unhappiest advisors had an average of $225 million under management. Hmm. The unhappiest advisors had an average of $225 million under management. And, and it's not just a random number plucked out of thin air. Uh, you know, most advisory firms, we talk about 1% fees, but we've got breakpoints, clients we household, big clients we give some deals to, some accommodation clients we have. If you really look, if you really take an advisory firm's revenue, like the actual dollars they bill and divide it into their assets and their management, what you find in practice is most AUM firms actually have a revenue yield of about 70 to 80 basis points. Mm -hmm. So if I'm $225 million under management, I'm probably somewhere around 1.7 to $1.8 million of revenue. Okay. Now, most advisory firms at that size have about $250,000 of revenue per employee. Okay. So a $1.7 million firm typically has seven people. Mm. Now, if you look up any classic book on management, mm. Uh, management books will typically tell you that most managers will start to struggle if they get more than about six to eight direct reports. Okay. More than that, like it's just hard to manage all the people and develop them and stay involved in their things and unblock them. And so if you look at a $225 million advisory firm, they probably have seven team members, which means the owner is right at the absolute max of what a manager typically can handle. And they probably are servicing 100 to 150 clients of their own, which mm. is also at or above the maximum that most advisors can comfortably handle. And that firm owner is doing both jobs at the same time, which means the hours tend to be very high. <laughs> the autonomy mm. is very low. You might be independent, but that just means you're, you've ended up being a slave to your business uh, and all the needs and demands that it has because of all the clients and all the team at the same time. And so that's why we found, like, notwithstanding this discussion around the desire for autonomy, the unhappiest advisors were independent advisors with $225 million under management. Mm. Uh, again, not say everybody at that size is categorically unhappy, but that's where we found the heaviest concentration of advisors who were struggling with very low well-being scores because they this business had built up to the point where it's it may be an independent business, but the business is controlling them and they're actually at a low point on autonomy. Hmm, that is really curious. What are the other factors that are that are driving happiness? So, so the second big factor that we found is experience. Raw years of client-facing experience is incredibly predictive of advisor well-being. Hmm. Now, on the one hand, like not not terribly helpful to say that for anybody who's newer in the industry and doesn't have experience, because like you can't do anything about that short of 
time and stick it out and 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 try to get through to the point that you are you are more experienced although it does has implications of if you're if you're still or you're earlier in your career and and feeling a little down because it is rough early in the early in the industry you know what what we can say very broadly friend and confidently from our data is advisors in their early years are fairly universally unhappy and it really does get better over time with mm. basically no end. We found advisors in their 50s were generally happier than advisors in their 40s. Advisors in their 60s were happier than advisors in their 50s. And advisors in their early 70s, because we had a non-trivial number who were still in the mm. business, were happiest of all. So on the one hand, like you know, just experience is powerful in our industry. You build brand and reputation in your community that makes business development easier. You hone your communication skills, which makes client relationships easier. You learn your technical craft, which makes just all the technical advice giving stuff easier. And you typically just build a client base and some recurring revenue. So it's it, you, you're not going through the lean hungry years that almost everybody still goes through in the early days. And so that combination makes experience incredibly powerful for advisors. It means, you know, as, as I tell younger folks, sometimes like you got to bear in mind this, this profession is much more of a marathon than a sprint. So pace yourself so that you can stay in the game in the long run. So you can stay in the race in the long run because it's really good in the long run, but you have to make choices that allow you to stay in long enough to get there. On the flip yeah. side, I think our research indirectly helps to illustrate at large why there's such a, a broad lack of adoption of succession planning in our industry, because the happiest advisors are in their 60s and 70s. They are also the highest earning advisors. If you look at any of the benchmarking data, because you've been in for a long time, you got your basic clients. It's pretty, pretty profitable once you get to that point. And so advisors in their 60s are the highest earning, lowest hours worked, highest well-being advisors. Mm. Why would you leave? Yeah, and that makes sense. And in the end, like most don't want to leave. I mean, I obviously health and or fate will, will dictate that outcome at some point, but no one's in a hurry to leave any faster than they need to. It's good work. It's meaningful work. It's psychologically rewarding. It's financially rewarding. It's not that hard at that stage and you feel really good about it. Why would you retire from that? Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we run into those older advisors, you know, in their sixties and seventies at, at conferences and and they're a pretty happy go lucky bunch. You know, they're, yeah. You know, they're out there with their Hawaiian shirts and, uh -huh. um, <laughs> um, you know, you wouldn't think that there was any unhappiness in the industry from meeting those guys. Yeah. So, I, that, so that's the second big factor that we found. And it's an interesting dynamic. Like autonomy, the whole point of autonomy is control. But we have some control over our autonomy because we can make choices about what firms we work with, what platforms we're on, what channels we're in and dial that to either quite where we are on the autonomy spectrum, because some are pretty hardcore and some just kind of want to control the few things that they really care about controlling, and just figure out where you care about autonomy, right? Some of us care about everything in the business down to like the 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 type of metal on the door handles. 
and others really just want to control a couple of key things about what they do and how they serve their clients. And they're happy to have a big firm take care of the rest, which is why we still see advisors across all channels. So mm -hmm. a, autonomy is one that we we have a lot of control over because we can decide where we work and who we affiliate with and just make sure we pick the thing that aligns to our preferences. Experience is largely just a function of time, yeah. aside from making the choice to stay in long enough to get there. Mm -hmm. the, the third big factor that we found is, is around team. Uh, and, and I, I want to, I want to asterisk this as we, uh, uh, and, and kind of caveat as we get out of the gate. Overall, what we found is that advisors that are on teams tend to be happier than those who are not. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean everybody should be on a team or should be forced towards a team. There are a subset of us who just really like being independent and on our own. We do not want to have to manage people. And if you take someone who does not want to team up and manage people and make them team up and manage people, you are not making them happier by giving them a team. You're just pissing them off because you're taking away their autonomy, which was the number one factor we talked about earlier. So this is not about forcing advisors towards teams, but as a bunch, we are kind of team and other and service oriented. It's why you pick the profession of financial advice and helping other people by giving them advice for a living. And so as advisors, we do gravitate towards teams, but even more so what we find is that a lot of the focus on teams comes down to allowing advisors to only do the stuff that they most enjoy doing and being able to delegate the rest. So mm -hmm. advisors who have, the, the biggest lift we find is simply advisors who have administrative support, client service administrators, so that they can delegate paperwork and, and tasky work, uh, show up show a pretty good lift in well-being. Advisors who are part of broader teams, so they're not the only advisor in the firm, you know, someone else to take the call when they're on vacation, tend to have greater well-being than others. Ironically, we found that advisors who have associate advisors on their teams, not actually happier, not less hmm. happy, but not not happier because associate advisor tends not to be quite as much of a delegation and sharing the work. It tends to be more of a, I'm developing this advisor to come up and maybe be a lead advisor someday to I could hand off some clients to. But at yeah. the associate stage, I can't hand anything off to them yet. I just kind of got to bring them along and spend some extra time training them that I didn't necessarily have time to do right now. So uh, we were sort of struck by the finding around that, that you know, advisors that have team members they can really effectively delegate to tend to be happier. Advisors who are just on teams to expand capacity and do more doesn't necessarily give us a lift in well-being. It's not worse, but- we don't get the lift. We get the lift when we're actually able to let go of some things to team members that are better suited to the to the roles and tasks. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And it, was there a fourth factor the, that you said? There was. The, the fourth factor for us was sort of a combination of advisors who are here because they want to serve. We actually found pretty directly if if we segment advisors into those that are that picks the profession for service over those who pick the profession for income, the service mindset advisors have significantly higher well-being than the income-oriented advisors. Mm. Notably, the income-oriented advisors do make more. 
they uh, have been successful <laughs> in finding their path to uh, higher incomes, significantly higher incomes. But the service-oriented advisors still made good money and the service-oriented advisors were happier. But you were only happy as a service-oriented advisor if you actually got paid pretty well for your work. So what we found is that there's a large segment of advisors who are so so service-oriented, bless our souls, that we, we, we accommodate a lot of clients who maybe aren't the best fit. We don't like saying no to people. We have maybe more clients than we probably should, but we don't want to turn them away because we'd feel bad if we turn them away. But the end result is we work a lot of hours for not a lot of money relative to the time that we spend in our practice. And we ultimately find that well-being goes down. If we do too much service and we don't actually get paid well for the work that we do, ultimately it tends to be a drag on well-being. And so there, there's sort of a, a service mindset, but but service with boundaries and service where you still actually get paid for the value of the service that you're bringing is, is the combination that's most associated with advisors that have a good well-being. Mm. That's great. Um, I I know we're we're almost coming up on time, but I wanted to get yeah. to, to a couple other points that I think are really important here. Yeah. And and there's one you know that that really stood out at me, and and um, you know, I mean, a lot of folks in this industry are trying to build firms and platforms, and and serve advisors in the best way, and they don't often think about well being and and uh, you know burnout and and things like that. But you know, I, I, there's a finding in here that you know you found that thriving advisors who are the happiest, mm -hmm. they were four times less likely to leave their current employer yes. or platform relative to struggling advisors, and so that that to me implies that there's a business case to employers and platforms fostering happiness and engagement um, among their advisors. And so what what do you think um, employers, firms, platforms can do to create better engagement and foster well-being? Oh, it's a great question. Yeah. So uh, so first of all, I just said, well, firm, yes, like we it, it, it was something I very specifically wanted to measure in the study. I wanted to see like at the end of the day, does well-being actually show up in turnover or do we just kind of stick it out unhappy because we're tied to our clients and our client base? And as you noted, we really did find that turnover rate, departure from both current firm and the industry overall is about 4X higher for advisors who are struggling on their well-being than thriving on their well-being. And again, that's not a money thing. A lot of the struggling advisors actually make great money the money is good, but they're miserable in the firm because they're making a lot of money and working more hours than they want to and not getting to see their family and enjoy the things that they want to enjoy in life. So they make yeah. their money and then they say, screw it, I'm out of here. And they walk away with their money and they leave the industry and the firm loses them. Mm -hmm. So we really do see a very material business impact around firms helping their advisors around well-being. From a practical perspective, I would say there, there's three things I think that firms can look at and focus on in trying to support team members this way and kind of around the factors that we talked about. The, the first is giving your advisors as much autonomy as they can, as, you, as they can, compliance is obviously still there, but 
giving advice as much time as they can, specifically around how they serve clients. The biggest friction point is when I can't serve my clients the way that I believe they should be served to be served well is where the biggest autonomy friction crops up. And mm -hmm. this is a phenomenon I find that is is particularly challenged in large larger firm platforms uh, because of a phenomenon that I, I, I've now taken a calling LCD compliance. LCD is short for lowest common denominator. It's that subset of firms that implement compliance policies and procedures based on the lowest common denominator, whatever the one biggest knucklehead in the entire firm could possibly do to screw over our clients. Cause unfortunately there are some bad apples out there. Yeah. Every good advisor gets dragged down to the compliance processes and procedures of the worst advisor in the firm. Hmm. And if you're a really big firm and you have a really large number of advisors, there's a really big spread between the average good advisor and the worst advisor that you're writing policies and procedures for. Firms figuring out how to address that. And there are some techniques in the compliance world. You do more risk-based assessments. You have more risk-based approaches where your advisors who already have track records of serving clients well don't quite need the same level of low bar scrutiny as your newer advisors or your more problematic advisors. Adapting your compliance to allow good advisors to serve their clients well has a big impact in advisor autonomy turnover. And the ones that can't figure that out tend to see more turnover. The second factor I would say is providing advisors support to delegate the things that they don't want to be doing and shouldn't be doing anyways. So admin support, paraplanner support, you know, services is now growing in many ways as a B2B offering in with with advisors, right? We see uh, firms doing inter uh, large firms in particular doing internal para planning desks, uh, expanding their advanced markets desks, uh, providing more admin and virtual assistance support. So for advisors that maybe struggle to hire and manage their own people, platforms and firms that can provide more of the support delegation, just let advisors serve clients and not have to deal with and worry about the rest, tend to do well with, again, the caveat autonomy still matters most. So you can't take the things away from the advisors and tell them to stop doing it. You have to make it available for them and then let them choose to do it because otherwise your team efforts violate the autonomy principle and you still got a problem. Hmm. The, the third dimension that I would highlight is providing support so that advisors can actually take time off. You know, most advisors struggle, would struggle mightily to take a one-week vacation where they disconnect. And it basically comes down to if my client calls and has an actual financial planning problem, there's no one to take the call. And if they've got a financial need and like need to do a trade and raise cash, there's no one to take the call and do the trade. Mm. And so if you can solve for, you know, particularly again as a larger firm, if you can solve for who would take the emergency call from the client and who would do the trade if they needed the trade, providing just that level of support so the advisor can actually go take a vacation and disconnect for a week is really powerful. It ultimately gets to hours worked and autonomy over time and a lot of other powerful impacts that that support retention in the long run and, and lift well-being in the long run.
Yeah, well, I think these are just some great uh, practical steps firms can take. And and as uh, firms get larger and, and become more of an organization and enterprise, these are things to, to take to heart. Um, well, I'm afraid we're just about out of time. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to, you know, I want to honor your time, Michael. Um, I'd like to thank my guest, Michael Kitzes, for being on the podcast and, and sharing just some really great insights on advisor well-being. Michael, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Diana. Appreciate it. Yeah. And if you'd like to reach out to Michael or you have questions about the study or anything else, uh, you can reach him at questions at kitsis.com. And if you struggle uh, yourself, if you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation.